Good morning and welcome to episode 20 of the Enterprise Should Suck Less podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Amit Pandey, and I've got with me my other co-host. Mike Pesfina. Um, and today we're really excited. It's an extra special podcast for me because we've got Alan Chu on the podcast. Um, Alan wears uh, many hats, investor, entrepreneur, lifelong student of enterprise and technology. Um, but I'm going to let Alan quickly introduce himself uh, before we jump in. Um, Alan, welcome to the show. Hi, everyone. Um, Alan Shu here. I'm currently wearing two hats. I'm co-founder and head of product of a financial services startup called Listo. We're a one-stop shop financial services provider for the, the underbanked Hispanic consumers in the U.S. I'm also a partner at a C-stage venture firm called Exceed Capital. I've been investing in enterprise startups for the last few years. Um, prior to that, I helped build three startups in Vancouver, Canada. The first one was an imaging uh, commercial printing company where I was a software engineer and uh, we're lucky enough to have an IPO uh, and reach a billion dollars revenue uh, the year after we IPO. So that was when I left that company to join a super early stage security startup uh, as engineering manager. Spent a couple of years building that, but unfortunately that business never took off. Um, so after that experience, I joined uh, another startup. Uh, this time it was in the private cloud storage space. We launched a product about a year before Amazon launched S3. Uh, I eventually moved into product management, helped get a company from one customer to about 200 clouds around the world, selling through IBM, HP, etc. Eventually got acquired by NetApp, and after that went to the Stanford Business School. Fantastic. And that's where I first um, met you, Alan, a couple of years ago. Um, so for our listeners, Alan's um, a graduate from the Stanford Business School Sloan program, um, which I uh, did as well a few years ago. And I remember you very distinctly, Alan, because you were, you know, one of the um, three and a half people, I think, doing enterprise stuff in the program. <laughs> um, and it was, it was really exciting to hear about that. So let's start with with the with the enterprise. Um, you know, the, the theme of our podcast is, you know, enterprise should suck less. Does enterprise suck? And uh, has your view on that changed in the years that you've been in the enterprise? Well, it has certainly sucked less over time. Um, the the move to cloud uh, cloud based services definitely has accelerated the uh, the product innovation cycle for for enterprise products. Having said that, though, I think the quality of user experience in the enterprise still lags behind that of consumers. Um, yeah, so so that definitely very keen on on this topic of enterprise to suck less. Got it. So you, you know, you said something interesting about uh, user experience being one of the areas that the enterprise still sucks in. Um, would you say that um, the, you know, the the user experience has sucked in some parts of the enterprise more than others? So let's take the example of, um, you know, everyday employees in organizations, right, and the way they use technology. Um, versus, uh, uh, you know, decision makers and the way they use technology. Um, would you would you say that um, uh, there there are some areas of the enterprise where you feel like, oh my God, that has literally not changed at all in the last decade? Well, in general, the the less the lower the switching cost for the end user in an enterprise, the the faster uh, the quality of user experience could could improve. If you look at 
collaboration, enterprise collaboration, for example, Slack has taken the enterprise market by storm. And to adopt Slack, it doesn't doesn't really take much, right? Any any knowledge worker could sign up for Slack and and start selling their own team on on using Slack, and it spreads from there. Uh, so as a result, we are seeing more rapid innovation in that space. If you contrast that with um, ERP systems or uh, finance HR type systems, where you really can't make that switch unless the whole company rallies around it. Right, naturally, the product innovation cycles are going to be longer uh, in those in those sectors, and as a result, you are more likely to see a, a a bigger gap between the quality of that kind of user experience versus something that an end user has more control over. You know, I find it um, interesting that you've seen the user experience question um, both wearing the entrepreneur hat and the investor hat. Um, would you say that? In general, the investors that you come across um, across the world and certainly here in the Valley care more about the the end user experience in the enterprise than they used to say a decade ago. Um, on you know o- overall, definitely um, there's more attention paid to to user experience. Prime and and going back to my earlier point, if if the enterprise product you're building has uh, it can be more easily adopted by the end user. You're more likely to pay more attention to the user experience and leverage that as a differentiator, as a competitive advantage against the incumbents, right? To, to take market share from them to into into grab new users. Uh, if your application um, uh, is more on the back end, where where the user has less control, well, then even if you offer a better user experience, that might not matter as much when it comes to the purchase decision, right? Um, and, and and as a result, the entrepreneurs or the the vendors are probably going to be investing less in that effort, and uh, and consequently, we we see a bigger gap uh, in quality of a the product there, over there in uh, from a user experience perspective. Right, and so building on what you said about you know those business functions where um, you know the end user can directly uh, sees that product. Uh, and if you now contrast that to the IT user experience, and you know, you've had um, a lot of your own experience in you know selling companies to uh, uh, larger organizations, such as you know when you sold to NetApp, where um, com- companies like NetApp, companies like Cisco, there's a whole genre of companies where the end user is IT. And so, if you think of IT as the end user, um, what are some of the technologies that you're most excited about that you think are actually making the the IT user experience success? That's a tough one, to be honest. I still distinctly remember having a conversation with uh, a partner at IDEO and talking mm-hmm. about, you know, there are a lot of enterprise infrastructure products where the, the user experience um, uh, for, for the administrators who need to work with this product, like, they, they really suck. Um, and there, there just doesn't seem to be a lot of incentives for the vendors to invest in that part of the product and make it excellent. And he had to agree. He's... I, and, and so I, I, my, the question I posed to him was, like, what, what are some of the ways that you can think of to realign incentives or reimagine how these products are designed to, to, to change the situation, improve the situation? He said, I have no idea. Honestly, he, he had thought about it, um, but basically the, the buyers don't care. The economic decision makers on the buyer side, they don't care as much about that as some of the other attributes of the product. Um, 
uh, pricing, uh, performance, etc. Uh, and as a result, the vendors don't invest in it. And, and, and as a result, the, the, the user experience, the administrative experience for these products continue to suck. Now, at some point, your product sucks so bad that it, it just leaves so, so much room in the, in the market for the next-gen uh, players to come, to come in and, uh, and, and make a, a step function improvement in that aspect. But that alone is often not enough to disrupt an incumbent, unfortunately. Yeah, and I think the uh, you know one of the big translations is you know how, can you provide some sort of cost savings in that in that respect? And I, I can't remember the name of the company, but there's a company, for example, that's basically provided like a Google search um, for enterprise networking, where instead of having an interface that says here's your configuration for enterprise networking, you have a search engine that can go and search where those endpoints are and IP addresses and whatnot. Um, and I think that's what's perhaps is changing on that front is to say, um, how can we use either consumer-facing technologies and experiences and bring them into the enterprise that can save money and, and costs? I think the challenge there ultimately is how do you, how do you prove that, that that cost savings is there, right? Um, and I think that's one thing I, I think to your point, Alan, is I've always wondered about, and clearly, if if one if somebody from you know one of the top design firms in in the country, and if not in the world, um, also kind of has no idea. I think it it, it probably means that uh, we haven't we haven't quite cracked that nut yet. I, I think that's an excellent point. Um, it, you know, there might be room for for a new player to emerge to capitalize on the. Uh, the underwhelming user experience of the uh, ex- existing enterprise products where IT administrators are, are users and enable them to either cut costs dramatically, uh, reducing a lot of the, the tedious labor that's involved today to configure and manage and use these products, um, or to enable them to, to deliver value in a way that wasn't possible before. right? Um, in a way, that's what AWS has, has done. Uh, dramatically lowering the cost of procuring new enterprise compute and uh, infrastructure resources, uh, and, there, and thereby taking market share away from a lot of the on-prem vendors. Right. You know, as you were uh, talking about, um, you know, a lot of the the challenges that uh, entrepreneurs run into when they're up against these incumbents. I was uh, the the word that came to my mind was passwords. Right. And that people have um, there there are different companies that have been trying to kill the password um, for a while. And uh, we're still in the early stages of whether um, post um, alphanumeric passwords um, will be, you know, will they be fingerprints or um, eye scans or whatever. But if you put on your investor hat for a second. Right. And you were, um, let's say, hypothetically looking at um, um, a range of startups that are all trying to kill passwords, you know, what is the the one thing that you would tell entrepreneurs uh, who are trying to take on a huge problem like that um, in terms of the the number one thing that they should watch out as they're building their companies and that, um, you know, the number one thing that entrepreneurs tend to underestimate when they get into, you know, the enterprise business and they're trying to take on something as huge as uh, killing passwords? Well, that's that's an interesting example, actually, because killing passwords is at once a, a... A huge challenge because it's a think of it as a horizontal problem that exists across all, almost all enterprise products. But at the same time, it it is a is it, it is a feature of of 
just one of the many features of a lot of products. And as a, as a result, it is a, a problem that's really hard to solve, right? No one really buys an, uh, a password manager for the, for the enterprise. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you need a lot, lot of vendors to adopt that. However, so one way to, to uh, approach that, though, is to think about, put that in a, in a different context, reframe the problem. Right. So if you're Okta, for example, and you, you're building a single sign-on uh, service, that gives you that puts you in a position to solve this password challenge. Right. But it's it's but they didn't set out to solve the password challenge. They saw they, they, they set out to solve the uh, the single sign-on challenge for enterprise SaaS services. And that in the end puts them in a position where if they wanted to, they could solve this password problem. So in, in general, what I've seen a lot of entrepreneur entrepreneurs is they get too focused on a um, the initial problem they wanted to solve without thinking through enough how they could build a business around it. Because even if they come over the product to solve the initial problem, it doesn't necessarily follow that they have built a venture-backable business. You know, that's such an uh, excellent point, Alan, in terms of underestimating um, the difficulty of, of doing this at scale. And I was just thinking that You've been in a very unique um, vantage point uh, in terms of the way uh, you're positioned to look at uh, global businesses because you know you you started um, uh, your enterprise journey in, in Canada. You had a lot of success uh, in uh, in, a, in a different global market, and you know you're uh, in California here. You you actually wear multiple hats, and so and even with uh, what you're doing in the in the fintech side now, you're doing a lot of work in. In, in South America. So just shifting gears a little bit towards the global question around enterprise technology. Um, you know, first, my first question would be, there's this notion that, um, you know, the uh, it's got to get solved in the U.S. first, and it's still the most important market um, for many companies to crack before they start thinking globally. Do you think that's changing? And if if so, where is it changing the most? Where you know, um, entrepreneurs should really pay attention to trends outside of the U.S. Uh, when it comes to enterprise software as well. It has certainly been true that the, the companies in the U.S. have been driving uh, a lot of the technology trends in the enterprise market. Um, now, people have talked about China a, a lot, and certainly China has a booming technology scene by now, and a lot of uh, large cap technology companies uh, growing out of China and now having global ambitions, but those are still mostly B two C consumer internet companies. Uh, it it is fascinating that we uh, uh, outside of Huawei and and Lenovo, uh, which have been around for a long time, we haven't really seen uh, enterprise uh, technology companies coming out of China. Uh, that that have global ambitions. So I'm I'm really curious uh, to see what what comes out of China in the next you know ten years, for example. Um, now Europe SAP has been dominant uh, a dominant player for a long time. European company enterprise in the enterprise market. Um, but what what comes next, right? Again, in the in the last five to ten years, you know, what are the, the the new new players that have emerged out of Europe that could uh, challenged some of the incumbents on a, on a global basis. I'm waiting to see that. Um, harder to imagine something coming out of Latin America, uh, to be honest. Uh, m- partly prop because of the of the uh, of the language uh, barriers, 
but I also wonder might it be because uh, the 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 relative immaturity of the enterprise uh, market from the buyer side in in that geography. But as some of these economies mature, certainly would love to see uh, more enterprise players emerge from the latter market as well, because I think uh, the enterprise market to could really benefit from a more diverse set of original thinkers to really reframe problems differently and resegment the existing markets to accelerate the pace of innovation. Right. Yeah, it's a fascinating point, Alan, about the maturity of the buyer, because um, you know you're right that uh, part of the challenge that entrepreneurs might face um, in uh, emerging markets is that you know they're also selling to buyers who are newer to SaaS buying. Given your recent experience um, in, in, in fintech, um, what are some of the things you're really excited about where um, enterprise technology can make the experience of uh, finance more productive and more delightful uh, for end users? Um, you know, we'd love to hear what, uh, you know, what you're, how you think about uh, fintech because you're now looking at it both from the, the vantage point of um, here in Latin America. Well, I think some of the uh, the patterns of evolution in the enterprise space are now uh, showing up in the fintech space. Uh, vendors moving from vertically integrated models to a more horizon, uh, horizontally oriented model uh, would generally enable more innovation in the layers above these uh, horizontal layers. I'll give you a concrete example. Uh, the company I'm building right now is called Listo. And we provide a variety of financial services to our, to our customers, and these are uh, end consumers. Now, for us to build these financial products from scratch would have been a long and capital-intensive process. So instead of doing that, we are now partnering with financial product vendors that are offering these financial services in a white-label fashion. As a, they're acting more like a, a platform. One of our partners is in Seek. They they offer lending as a service. They don't provide lending, uh, personal loans directly to consumers, right? But rather, they provide a platform on which we can build uh, our own branded products, and we are the ones who own the customer relationship, right? And and that kind of transformation from a vertically integrated lender to a player that offers lending as a service, we've seen played out in the enterprise market. And that's happening in in the fintech uh, space now. Even the large insurance carriers are starting to offer APIs for startups to work with, right? So that's an interesting trend that I think will foster uh, a lot of uh, new ways of not just acquiring and servicing customers, but but also potentially new forms of financial products that are built on top of these platform products. Fantastic. Um, APIs everywhere. That's actually quite exciting. Um, you know, we started to hear about uh, some governments thinking about um, uh, the API approach to helping uh, startups and their economies. Um, you know, I recently came across uh, something called the India Stack, which is um, an initiative by some nonprofits around really, you know, building a, a layer of API services uh, so that the next generation of fintech startups and edtech startups and such in that market you know, can use thing, common things like, um, you know, uh, citizen identity and, and things like that. And um, again, that sounds almost like the idea of um, 
you know, the way the Silicon Valley spreads across the world is, is through those ideas spreading, right? Um, and so it's really exciting to hear um, that API perspective you just shared from South America. Um, as we transition towards the last couple of minutes of the podcast, um, I wanted to, I have two uh, other questions. Hey, Mike, uh, feel free to jump in. Um, my first question is around uh, something you did a couple of years ago, which was, um, and I noticed you created um, a huge music network back um, in Canada. It was just called Photon. Um, it was uh, in the inspirational music space. And I was uh, curious if you've uh, thought about getting back into 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 music or music networks because um, uh, it, uh, it was one other unique aspect of Alan that I did not know about till I was doing more research on you. <laughs> that's that's an interesting angle. Um, you know, I'm not sure if I I'll go back, not, not right now. Uh, but I've been observing the evolution of the music industry um, keenly. One of the things that was really unique uh, that we built at Photon was this network of musicians that could engage and contribute in whatever capacity they wanted. Uh, they control how much time and effort they want to put into production and what, and, and what part of the production they wanted to participate in. Um, and we, in terms of marketing, rather than emphasizing particular artists, which is the way uh, most music labels have done, we have emphasized the music, uh, the, so focusing on the content rather than on, on the creators. And as a result, that, that, that's what gives us the, the flexibility to have a uh, diverse and uh, flexible talent pool uh, and also build a, a strong unifying brand uh, that's, that reflects the, the type of music that we're creating rather than, than tying ourselves too much to any specific artists. So I, I, I'm, I wonder you know, how widely that model uh, is applicable across the, the rest of the industry. Might that uh, lead to a new wave of uh, music and, and artists, and musicians and artists who might not have a uh, find it feasible to really put their music out there today, but through this model, uh, they might give them uh, a way to to ease themselves into the music industry, or just choose to to participate in in a capacity that they're comfortable with, and and that might lead to more even more uh, more choices for uh, for music consumers. But discovery still remains an issue. That's not that that is a, an issue that we weren't able to to really solve effectively. And I think the industry is still struggling with that. Whoever solved the music discovery problem uh, at scale, uh, uh, let me know. I would very much love to consider investing in that company. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, well, my, my last question as we uh, kind of get towards uh, the end is, because um, uh, I got to ask you this, Alan, if you, if you could build the ideal bot, um, you know, that is, you know, an Allen bot, if you will, right? W what would that bot be like? The ideal bot. Wow. Um, you know what? I, I don't, I can't, I have a hard time thinking of one ideal bot, but I can mm -hmm. think of ideal bots for different areas of my life. Right. Um, for, I, I can think of an ideal bot for, uh, for, my, for my investor life to help me uh, decide which entrepreneurs to spend time with. Uh, I can think of an ideal bot for my startup life, definitely. And I can think of an ideal bot for my family life. I have four children and my wife and I are uh, uh, 
they keep us on our toes. We're very busy managing our family activities and schedules. So uh, a family assistant bot would be, very much be welcome. Now, if there's a bot that would help my kids get into college, awesome. I'll pay anything. I would pay anything for that bot. Oh, what a wonderful answer, Alan. Thank you for sharing that. Um, uh, well, Alan, this is you know this has been great. Um, I'm sure we could um, do uh, several podcasts to go deeper into a specific technology area with you, and we'd certainly hope to do that. In the last um, uh, 30 seconds, minute or so, um, we usually um, uh, invite our guests to uh, let our listeners know what the best way is for people to know more about what they do and hear more about them. So, kind of over to you, um, you know, for the last 30 seconds to. Um, uh, you tell us about how people can get in touch with you if they'd like to know more about what you're up to. Sure. Um, I'm uh, always on Twitter. My handle is Alan Chiu, A-L-A-N-C-H-I-U. So feel free to reach out on uh, on Twitter that way. Uh, I'm also on LinkedIn. Uh, I get code uh, uh, LinkedIn messages all the time. I can't say I respond to all of them, but as long as the, the request is is reasonable and not, not too far out there, you know, I, I usually respond and engage. Fantastic. Well, um, it was great having you, Alan. And uh, for our listeners, if you've got ideas on bots or on music, uh, you've heard Alan uh, send those ideas back. Um, uh, thank you once again. My pleasure.